I'm Mercy Quay. And I'm John Dankowski. We've got a new podcast from the Connecticut Mirror. This season, we're going straight to the community to find out whose stories are going untold. Untold, coming soon from the Connecticut Mirror. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, here we go. This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. Welcome, I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us today for Connecticut in Motion, where we're going to explore both the future of Connecticut's transportation system and the many issues facing commuters today on the road and in the workplace. This series is a production of CT Rides, a program of the Connecticut Department of Transportation that works to find green commuting solutions for today's workforce. Now, we've all had this experience of the last two years of adapting to what we'll say is the new normal. Many cities have adapted. Roadways gave way to bike lanes and outdoor dining. Transportation adapted, to be sure. And the workplace did adapt with greater flexibility for working from home, like I am today. Today, we're going to address getting employees back into the workplace while maintaining some of what we learned during the COVID pandemic. And we should note here that this is a pandemic that is not over. Even as restrictions have lifted and life feels closer to what it was like in 2019, public health officials are watching the spread of variants of the virus. So with all of this, what does the future for the workplace look like in Connecticut? Let me introduce our panelist. Christy Pantima is president and CEO of the Connecticut Business and Industry Association. He's going to provide some employer perspective on current trends. Chris, welcome to this program. Thanks for having me, John. Great to see you. Good to see you as well. Marlena Cowan-Bailey is executive director for Connecticut SHRM. She's going to address some of the COVID impacts on human resources in the workplace on both a national level and also right here in the state. Marlena, welcome to our show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And Rich Andreski is Bureau Chief of the Bureau of Transportation, the Connecticut Department of Transportation. Rich, thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure, John, to be with you and our, our fellow panelists. Now, I want to start with you, Chris, and a, a recent poll by our partners at the Hartford Business Journal shows that a majority of employers say that they would require more or all of the workers to return to the office. Do you think that that's representative of Connecticut employers that you've been talking with? And do you think that this is going to be a trend over time? Yeah, it is representative of the members that we have and the businesses that we've talked to throughout the state. And it's certainly, it's been trending. Omicron, I think, disrupted it for a little bit um, and gave us maybe a a 30 to 60 day pause there. And now that trend has picked back up and is continuing with a lot of businesses returning to work in the month of March and April. And now the question is, what does that return to work look like? Is it how many days in the office? How many days working remotely? Uh, Am I in the office for staff meetings and events? Um, So a lot of granularity to be worked out and devil in the detail on a case-by-case, business-by-business basis, but it's certainly a trend that's happening. So what are employers telling you? I mean, give me a little bit more detail about what they're asking you, what they may be saying to you about their uh, return to work plans. Yeah, most have embraced a hybrid element. So a certain amount of days in the office and a certain amount of days continuing to work remotely. And for most people, that means working from home. Um, The vast majority that we've talked to is either a two day in the office, three day from home, or three day in the office, two day from home, 
policy. And it's it's the employers right now trying to, to understand the fine line between this work-life balance that was probably somewhat enjoyed during the pandemic and that a lot of employees now want as a way of life moving forward. So employers navigating recruitment and retention, retention tools, if you will, and navigating what's, what's that fine, what's that good mix? How do I make sure the employee is, is happy and getting that work-life balance with the remote work, but still being productive, still getting uh, the collaboration that we see more often in person, that mentoring in person, um, but for the most, most work uh, or most employers, it's kind of two or three days in the office and the other days at home. That collaboration piece is something that employers have certainly talked to me about, wanting to get people back, working together. But there there seems to be so much that we've learned about remote work. Chris, are, are many of the employers that you talk with saying, you know, we learned something substantive here about how to have people work remotely that we're going to continue into the future. This is this was an opportunity for us to learn a better way of working. Yeah, I think, John, most employers see it as a long play. You know, some, there's been some talk early on, uh, maybe a year ago about, okay, well, this would be a short-term thing. And then as we fully recover, everyone will be back in the office 100% of the time. Quite honestly, the employers I talk to see this as, as a long-term play. Is it five years, 10 years, 15, or forever to be determined? Um, but it is uh, embracing it as a way of life. And, and we've learned during COVID that we can work remotely, whether it's by implementing certain technologies, like we're enjoying during this webinar, um, or finding the right rhythm, if you will, of in-person activity and engagement and balancing that with the remote work. The challenge now that employers are really starting to wrestle with as we start to truly embrace this hybrid environment is how do I measure productivity? For those folks who do have to come in the office maybe a little more often, the folks maybe in finance or behind the scenes in admin, um, how are, I can see their productivity because they're in the office and I can maybe measure their workflow. But those who are working more remotely, how do, I, how do I measure their productivity to make sure there's balance across the staff, if you will, and that there isn't a favoritism or a feeling of unbalanced. But, but there certainly have been studies, uh, not just over these last two years, but over the history of work that shows that if you don't make people come into the office and you just let them work at the job, again, this is for jobs when you can do this, you can actually work remotely, that people can be more productive. They don't have to worry about whether or not their kid's struggling at school. They don't have to worry about whether or not they, they picked up the groceries on time or if they're eating a healthy meal uh, in the middle of the day. There's a lot of advantages. And I guess I'm wondering if, if you're hearing from employers that, that these advantages are getting baked in. Sure, we need to be productive, but maybe we, we found a better way to be productive. Yeah, they are getting baked in and, and employers are really embracing that there is a level of productivity out there. It's not questioning it. It's just how do I put a, a tangible measure around it? And, and the, that's just one element. The other concern is, okay, with the lack of in-person, am I losing something in the collaboration? Am I losing something in the mentorship? Not to say that we're going to go 100% in-person, but how do I continue that balance? I know at CBIA, we have everyone here when we have all staff meetings or everyone in person, we have department meetings when there is that collaborative forum. But when you're working independently, certainly work remotely. Um, we have a culture engagement team literally focused on making sure our employees stay engaged in the mission and the organization so that they don't feel like they're on an island all by themselves at home or, or working remotely. So just keeping them in touch and engaged and connected is key. 
Uh, Orlena, I'm wondering if you can pick up on this from an HR standpoint. What are some of the things that, that you're hearing from employers that you're dealing with, not just here in Connecticut, but nationwide about the way they're, they're addressing these issues? Yeah, so just to pick up on some of the points that Chris referenced, I think that collaboration piece is key. And, you know, some of the ways that employers have tackled trying to enhance that experience from an employee experience perspective includes like technology, right? So maybe some companies weren't using Teams as much, but then they went, you know, hybrid or they went remote. And now Teams is a norm, right? Zoom is a norm or some other companies use Slack. So really finding ways to use those collaboration tools in the work in the workplace um, and definitely maximizing technology. And I think, um, you know, what this pandemic has taught us is that, you know, many companies have had employees across the country forever, right? And you may have had someone on the West Coast, someone in the Midwest, someone on the East Coast or in the South, and they may not have felt as included before in some of the, you know, home office type events or activities. So I think that definitely is a silver lining in this as well, because now it sparked a focus and emphasis on inclusivity regardless of your geographic location, right? Because now we've all kind of had to do it. And I think we shouldn't forget the fact that there have been some employees who never left the workplace, right? So the idea of the essential worker has been essentially revolutionized um, with you know, the person who had to show up and be a cashier at Target or the drivers who had to drive the bus, the people who had to drive the trains, right? The, person who had to deliver our mail. Um, so all of these different types of workers have been active in the workplace. And, um, you know, just thinking about all types of employee populations, there's also definitely a sense of some burnout. And, you know, I've encouraged leaders that I work with to be sure to lead with compassion, lead with empathy. Chris touched on earlier about productivity and, you know, there might be some concerns from that perspective. Um, but I think leaders who are leading and building trust with their teams and creating an open space and forum for employees to share their feedback will have better results, engagement, retention, and hopefully productivity as well, where you're not, you know, micromanaging as someone active on teams today because, you know, you just have that general trust. And as you mentioned earlier, John, I do think that, um, you know, the employees who are high performing really appreciate having the flexibility in the workplace, right? And that's something we've seen in Connecticut. Um, you know, I would say maybe during 2020 at the, you know, peak of COVID, maybe 70% of, um, you know, office workers were working remotely and it was probably higher in the beginning. And now we're at about 60% of employees who are working remotely or in a hybrid capacity as much as they can, right? Because they've appreciated having that flexibility and the organizations who have embraced that have seen increased levels of productivity and output of work as well. I'm glad that you mentioned essential workers though, because for many people, this pandemic never allowed them to work from home. They had to work even harder while the rest of us were kind of sheltering in place. I guess I'm wondering, um, what sort of uh, help you think the companies need to give people who have for the last two plus years been grinding away at jobs that have required them to still work, sometimes in dangerous conditions, while everyone else is finding new ways to adapt? Yeah, 
Um, it's, it's a great point. And I think that the employers who have been, I mean, it's change management, right? So everyone is adjusting, um, or as you mentioned at the start, it's a new normal for us. Um, so really demonstrating that agility and, and creating an open forum, again, where employees can share their feedback and what's important for them and really engaging in that dialogue to you know, embrace that, the flexibility um, of that work environment. And again, going back to the trust piece, um, I think it is essential that um, you know, managers are holding employees accountable in a manner that's you know, equitable, but also being open to some of the challenges that you know, have come up as a result of the pandemic, whether it was a period of time where you know, daycares were closed or schools were closed, people have homeschooled. We've had a lot of workers leave the workforce as well. And you know, every day we're hearing about the great resignation, right? And I, I, I saw something on the news yesterday about there's actually a shift already happening where it's the great regret where some employees <laughs> have left the workplace and chose another job because you know it was seen more attractive and unfortunately the grass wasn't greener on the other side. So we've seen that shift as well in the workplace. So there's, there's a lot of priorities and what honestly what I think is key as general as it sounds is communication, right? So I think employers need to be proactive in their communication. They need to be timely. They need to be transparent. They need to be collaborative and they need to be receptive you know, to the feedback that the employee population is, is sharing with them. And also obviously looking at what impact does it have on the overall business results, right? So that is an important factor. Right? That's what we're here. What impact does it have to the bottom line? I, I wanna get back to that retention and recruitment piece of it because both you and Chris have, have talked about this, but I wanna bring Rich into the conversation. I guess as you listen to this conversation, Rich, uh, as you're responsible for managing bus and rail services across the state, what sort of impacts from the COVID pandemic have you seen specifically to, to transportation issues? And, and how do you think some of the things that we've been talking about here will be shifting over the course of the next uh, several months or maybe the next year? John, this is a fantastic conversation. I'm really enjoying this. And, and the, the thought comes to mind, you know, we in Connecticut have a very rich public transportation system. Um, we have an extensive bus network uh, and obviously many are familiar with our rail lines. And one of the things that distinguishes us from many parts of the country is that during the pandemic, we were able to sustain uh, full, full bus service across the state. And that's a credit to the men and women that provide those services. Um, the reason we did that is um, we, we didn't, take quite the same hit in ridership that many uh, regions and cities experience. Uh, a lot of the users of, of public transportation, specifically bus service, uh, use it for everyday trips. Um, they, they use it to get to a doctor's appointment. They use it to go shopping. They use it to go to places of employment or education. So um, we were particularly proud of that. Um, and, you know, at, at the low point, we, we lost about 60% of our riders, but that was very short term. We're back to about 70, 70% 70 of our riders have, have returned to our bus system. Um, it, a little bit of a different story on the railroad. Uh, we, we have, um, uh, the rail lines typically are more commuter oriented. So people use those trains to get into New York City for their, for their jobs. Um, the, the services are back, the riders are coming back um, steadily. We've seen a, a market shift over the last couple of months uh, going from, you know, somewhere in the 40% range down to nudging uh, above 50% of pre-pandemic levels. Um, 
I think I think the commutation um, is going to come back to a large extent, but we may not see it five days a week. We we will see you know some greater variability and hopefully a little bit of a spreading of of trip times, meaning people may not be going in on a hard schedule. Uh, that remains to be seen. Um, I think there's opportunity here too. I think one of the challenges that we had was there was such a defined peak period in, in train service that we optimized train schedules for capacity. So the opportunity with flexible work is not only is it better for quality of life, we heard from Chris and Orlina about you know, quality of life and, and the, the home dynamic work-life balance, but we're now able to look at train schedules and look at optimizing for travel time and speed uh, because we have some, a little bit less service on the railroad, uh, now we can begin to move in the direction of what can we do to shorten trip times and make that customer experience even a little bit better. So, so if you are able to provide a better service, maybe less crowded trains that move a little bit faster, that's an attractant to people who are going to use these services. Maybe they didn't use them as much before, but now you see something that looks just a little bit better than it, than it was, not a crowded train, getting you there a little bit faster. I don't know, that, that seems to make a lot of sense for a lot of commuters, Rich. It sure does. I mean, you know, uh, Governor Lamont has been urging us to um, shave time off the schedule. So we're, we're going to be doing that this spring. Stay tuned for more on that, but there's going to be some new train schedules coming out. I think uh, commuters will like them very much. Uh, we have a focus long term that uh, we need to do everything we can to to uh, improve that trip time. Um, right now, from New Haven, it can take two hours and fifteen minutes on a on a local train, and and that's a that's a long day on the train, right? If you're going down to New York City and back, so um, we're going to be working on that and and continue to remind people we're here. We want people to come back and try us again. Um, we've got some great services that we offer and. Um, yeah, I think I think the long term trend. Let me let me point out that I'm, I I do ride the rails, and I'm doing this uh, webinar today from Philadelphia, and uh, I took the train down to Philadelphia uh, on Amtrak, and and the trains were crowded. Uh, every every other seat was taken. It, it, it's encouraging to see. What improvements uh, have you made to buses and trains to make them? really safe to use during COVID and to make people feel as though they're safe to use during COVID. And how many of those changes are going to remain into the future? Well, currently the mask requirement is still in place on all public transportation. That's a, that's a federal requirement in, in accordance with the CDC. Um, so for the time being, uh, mask wearing is required. Um, there's ample room on the trains for the most part. Trains have, have there, there is room to spread out. Um, the air exchange rate on, on trains is uh, phenomenal. Every six minutes, the air on board a rail car is exchanged with fresh air. So it's not, uh, it's not a combined uh, space where you're not getting that air exchange. And, and so um, all studies that have been done on this over the last two years have shown that it's, it's quite safe to be aboard a train. And I think people are getting more comfortable with that. We're seeing, we're seeing the return of the riders. So clearly people are responding and feeling feeling it is safe to ride. On that point of, of safety, Orlina, every workplace is, of course, different. Some employees are still quite nervous, rightly, about being back in the office 
unmasked in many cases with people who they don't know are vaccinated, people who they don't know where they've been. I'm wondering how HR professionals are dealing with this issue at this moment in the pandemic and how you think it's going to be shifting over the course of time, providing safe workspaces for people so they can feel like coming back to work is something that they want to do. Yeah, that's a great question and definitely a hot topic in the HR space right now about that return to work. And, you know, as you mentioned, we've been returning, <laughs> stopping going, returning. So we're finally going and moving ahead for many of the employers in Connecticut um, and the greater Hartford area and beyond and, you know, across the country. And I think, again, the communication to the employee population of what to expect when you do go back to the office, right? Because some things may look different. Um, and some of the protocols are different, how you may check in, where you may park, where you, you know, put your laptop, where your computer station is, because there have been shifts as well in the number of employees in the office. What are their preferred days, you know, to be in the office as well? Um, and now that the CDC has, you know, loosened the guidelines around mask mandates or mask wearing, I've seen the trend that most companies are doing mask optional, right? So. Um, they may still keep the protocol of doing, um, you know, a health form of just like a check-in. Have you had any symptoms? Do you, have you been, have you tested positive in the past X number of days? So I see that practice still remaining, um, but I've also seen the trend where companies have now just kind of gone optional with mask wearing, but also, you know, talk about various protocols, whether it's um, how many people are in a conference room, how many people are using the elevator? Um, I've, I've heard of some employers, is the, the salad bar open? You know, <laughs> so it's simple. And, you know, lunch lunch drama can be very hot in an employee relations topic of what's being served, but just really taking those protocols where maybe it's more grab and go, right? Um, and having the proper resources at your respective location in case someone is experiencing symptoms, what should managers do? What should the employee do? Right. So, again, just really being thinking of every case scenario you possibly can and also knowing that when that day goes live um, where people are returning, that you're prepared for maybe that influx of questions. How do I? Where do I? Um, and another trend that I've seen across the country and locally has been phasing employees back, right? So I, mm -hmm. I would not recommend that an organization says, all right, folks, we're all going back tomorrow or next week and everyone's flooding into the, the, the office. That would probably not be the most effective approach. So I think, you know, organizations, HR professionals, leaders need to be strategic and thoughtful about phasing people back. And maybe it's not, you know, even if they are going back full time, maybe they are phasing back a few days a week and then going up to that full-time status just to get everyone to a level of comfort and you know, really adjusting to the new normal. Chris, I'd love your thoughts on this. Uh, Orlina, really, the fact that she gave you more questions to your answer than answers to your question, I should say, um, <laughs> really sums it up. It, I think some people think, okay, we've all figured it out. We're going back to work now. It is still a significant work in process and there needs to be patience from the employer and the employee. And it's in a variety of ways. It's a lot different than pre-pandemic. Think about it. I used to be able to go from business to business and know what the expectations were. I know if I went into a manufacturer, I put safety glasses on, maybe some required steel toe shoes, some didn't, but there wasn't a lot of gray area. 
now as you move from business to business, it's very unique and customized based on their culture, what their workplace looks like physically and, and also um, culturally. And so there's a lot of dynamics in there. And then it's also not just in the workplace. It's for those who are working remotely. Well, Lena talk, talked about the, the great regret that we've been starting to hear about. And these are folks who have all of a sudden now worked 100% remotely. Sorry, John, I got a fire truck coming through. They, see, that that's one of the things about being in your office. Yeah, you know, there, it right? is, there, it is. there you are in Hartford and the fire trucks go, goes by. I'm, the noise I'm perfectly, perfectly quiet out here in Winstead, Connecticut. <laughs> anyway, Chris, I'll let you continue. Yeah, so there's also this, we've been so, so focused on that dynamic of what the in-office workplace and rules are that we've forgotten about what are the at-home rules. I'm working at home, so people assume I'm working 24-7. I've almost blurred the, the work-life balance worse by working from home. I know when COVID pandemic first hit, um, I went from traveling three weeks a month and spending a lot of time in airports to now sitting in a chair running a facility in France, which was six hours ahead of me and facility in the West Coast, which was three hours behind me. I ended up sitting in my chair for about 15 to 16 hours with no bio breaks, no get up and stretch breaks that you have naturally when you're in the office. So that's all the things we're trying to figure out. And it's definitely a work in process. I'm wondering, Orlena, could you just quickly pick up on that piece of it? Because I, I think that's a, that's a reality that I think started some years ago when we all decided that we could do everything on our cell phones and we were constantly in contact with the office. That's just been exacerbated now. Chris already said it, these long Zoom calls, you're constantly on. How do you think companies are dealing with that particular issue? And do you think they're effectively dealing with the burnout that can come with that? Yeah, I think the, the burnout piece, I think the organizations are getting it. Um, they're starting to get it more. And what I say is, instead of working from home, I'm living at work. Right. So as Chris said, the boundaries there, they're a little blurred. Right. Because, yes, there are some conveniences, but I do feel like I'm in this chair probably more often than I would like to be. And where I was, you know, before hustling and bustling to, you know, a conference for a conference room on like the 10th floor or maybe walking to go get a you know, a cup of coffee or going to collaborate with another peer in another part of the building. So it, it, it can be um, a different type of fatigue, right? You know, being at home and dealing with that. And especially, you know, as Chris mentioned, if you're working in um, a geographic and you're working different time zones as well, you, you know, obviously feel the pressure of being available to support those various time zones. So in an HR capacity, I've supported, you know, employees, leaders, teams, business units across the country, you know, from California to Florida to Maine um, and everywhere else in between. So, you know, I think that has been a norm, but I think, again, that burnout and making sure and now the burnout piece has been, again, fatigue. But how employers are responding to that is making sure that they have maybe re-looked re at or revitalized their employee assistance programs, which we call EAP. They've been providing like mindfulness sessions or having you know, a coach that is available a certain days a week to talk about how to reduce stress or how to deal with conflict or how to better prioritize or how about just telling your team, go take a walk, like take your lunch, go for a walk. The weather, although it's been a little cold in Connecticut, <laughs> unseasonably, but go outside, take a breather, get some fresh air. And I think leaders need to model that 
because oftentimes I hear leaders saying this maybe to their teams, but then they're shooting out emails at eight o'clock at night, 6 a.m. on Saturday morning, you know, 12 o'clock during lunchtime per se. So I think leaders need to definitely embrace it, model it, and then encourage their teams to really, you know, take a breather when you need to, because it's not sustainable, you know, to just kind of keep going and going and going. And sometimes I'm sitting on my computer, you know, a little later in the evening and someone's like, hey, are you available? And I'm like, what, you know? <laughs> so it can definitely, and I'm here like, you know, outputting work because I've been in meetings all day. So I need time to actually do work. <laughs> so it is definitely an interesting shift. Yeah, I, I want to turn to something, you know, as you were talking, Arlena, about the differences between the different parts of the country that, that you cover in your work, California, Florida, Maine, and certainly Connecticut, Rich, you know, Connecticut is a small state, but it's sort of broken into two different workforces, the workforce that you talked about that heads into New York City, and the workforce that's around the greater Hartford and greater New Haven area. I guess, as we talk about this a little bit and how things might be different in different parts of the state. What else can you tell us about what you've learned on the transportation end about this, about how the New York City workforce is maybe adapting to this or changing around this time differently than the Hartford or New Haven workforce? Well, first of all, you know, in Connecticut, about one in two residents lives in that New Haven to Greenwich corridor, uh, the I-95 corridor, south, southwest Connecticut. Um, really a high concentration of people, uh, employment, and then it is a very much a commuter-oriented sort of bedroom community in many ways for, for the jobs in New York City. Um, I think what's, <clears throat> what's changing is many of those jobs are in financial services, um, healthcare, research, um, and those positions all translate very well to remote work. Um, there's some evidence that, uh, you know, what we're seeing in the real estate market in Connecticut, uh, there's a shifting of of people moving out a little farther away. And, and maybe that commute is more tolerable now, right? Where in the past, you might not have been able to live in the Naugatuck Valley or, um, you know, east of New Haven. But, but if you're only going in two days a week, you know, maybe that commute now is, is feasible. Um, so I think that's some of the changes we're going to see. We're going to see uh, maybe a greater dispersion of people uh, looking for, you know, a bigger piece of property, a different quality of life, a more affordable lifestyle. Um, I, I think uh, also, um, you know, the, the propensity of people to choose public transportation, that, that the calculus is changing for people. Um, we, we are going to do everything we can to bring them back. And one of the ways we're doing that is we're going to have free uh, bus transit beginning in April. April through June, uh, the buses around the state, every bus will be free, um, including the buses that go into Hartford. So if you work in Hartford, and you live in Middletown, you live in Old Saybrook, you live in Waterbury, you'll have the ability now to jump on a bus and go into downtown Hartford without charge. So we're hoping that'll bring people back. Um, and we'll remind uh, everyone that we have our Hartford line too, which is really uh, was thriving before the pandemic. It's a great service. Um, anywhere, if you live anywhere between, um, and you know, Windsor Locks and New Haven, that's a great way to go. Free bus service for a certain period of time is obviously something that that might get people back into buses. Uh, some of the, the the train schedules being different, you know, fewer peak trains make it a little bit more affordable for people. I guess I'm just wondering, Rich, how uh, sustainable is this for a public transportation system over the long period of time? If people's habits change drastically and we use the rails 50 percent less 
on average, and we use the buses 30% less, are we able to sustain the type of transportation system that we'd like to have here in the state? You know, I think it, we, we need to find a way to do that. And here's why. I mean, the public transportation system is part of our quality of life and our competitiveness with other regions. It's clear that people of all backgrounds want public transportation. There's a, um, you know, the younger people that want to move into, you know, the cities, um, they want the ability to get around without a car. There are people who are aging in place that want the ability to travel and not have to rely on a personal vehicle. Uh, for others, a personal vehicle is a, is a barrier. It's a very expensive to own a car. There's insurance and fuel, and, and you have to find a place to store it. Um, so there are whole, whole sets of, of, of people that, you know, for whatever reason, I mean, public transportation is the best option. Um, the ability to get around freely and with, with ease uh, makes us competitive. To your question about do we ever get back to that number, that pre-pandemic number, what I would argue is that's sort of an arbitrary, in my mind, an arbitrary number. Re remember, before the pandemic, we had 80 million users of public transportation, about 40 million on the railroad and about 40 million on the bus system. If, if we you know, don't get back to 80 million, and let's say we only get, only get to 60 million annual trips, that's still a very substantial number of people that we, we need to serve. Um, we're going to calibrate and invest accordingly. So over time, yes, we, we might flex our resources and have less service in one area and more service in another. But um, I, I want to be careful about always going back to that pre-pandemic number because I think we've, we've had a seismic shift here. And I, I don't know that pre-pandemic is, is the right benchmark any longer. Of course, public transportation infrastructure isn't the only infrastructure that needs to be sustained. Chris, there are plenty of employers. I mean, look, look to Hartford. I can probably ask you to look out the window of the building that you're in right now, and you'll see some surface parking lots. And those surface parking lots were often very filled with people who would drive in and then drive out at the end of the day. That's a big expense in some cases that consumers, uh, in some cases the commuters bear, but it's a big expense to employers as well who are leasing space. What does any of this do to the future of driving to work huge parking garages, incentives for people to, to take public transportation? Do you think any of that shifts? Yeah, there's definitely going to be that shift towards the public transportation as it becomes uh, more challenging, maybe to find parking lot spaces if they're converted um, and or more expensive. And I, I agree with what Rich said too. It's, it's so critical that we don't lose sight of it or become short-sighted around the transportation system in Connecticut. We have uh, so many job opportunities, either in more in our suburban rural areas, where we need to move folks from the urban areas to those opportunities. In Connecticut right now, we have 117,000 job openings, a record number. We've got a workforce that has shrunk uh, by more than 80,000 people here in the state, which represents uh, about 14% of the total US workforce shrinkage, even though we're only 1% of the population, and more than 50% of the Northeast shrinkage. So how do we fill these jobs? Well, we look at the areas where maybe we have higher levels of unemployment. Those are our urban areas. And we figure out a way to move those people from the urban area to where the jobs are. And, and unfortunately or fortunately in Connecticut, a lot of those jobs end up being in some of our you know, rural areas around the outskirts. Um, and so that's gonna be critical that we continue to focus on the public transportation system, not just because of the parking lots and maybe the cost of, of, of parking in the cities, but so that we can move um, individuals. It's an interesting dynamic in Connecticut right now. It's almost like the tale of two states. If you look at, if you go visit Stanford, which I've had the opportunity to do because a lot of our memberships are down in Lower Fairfield County, 
it's still a fairly vibrant city. You see a lot of folks walking around, you see commerce and the economy still working because a lot of folks were commuting from the city to somewhere. If you walk around right now in Hartford, come outside our building, I mean, you can walk the streets of Hartford and walk blocks and not, not encounter an individual. And that's because a lot of folks were coming to the city, not from the city. And obviously Hartford started to double down on building more residential apartments and facilities in the city like Stanford had done years ago to keep that economy growing, keep that commerce growing. Um, but that's critical a piece in the public transportation is a big component of it. But but of course, if if a part of that is is moving people to where the jobs are, and you're saying there's more jobs right now in suburban areas, we have to get people to, that portends an even worse outcome for a city like Hartford, where you don't have a whole lot of vibrancy. What else don't you have? Then you don't have people buying sandwiches at the local store. You don't have a lot of the infrastructure. Plus, we mentioned this before, Chris, real estate is has really taken a hit here. If people are downsizing their office spaces, there's going to be even more empty office space. How do we deal with some of those issues that are an outgrowth of all this? Yeah, and that's embracing the residential element of a city. And you know, Stanford has shown the way, and in cities before Stanford outside of Connecticut had shown the way of having a vibrant residential and business community in a city, maybe more of a balance than, than Hartford had pre-pandemic. And Hartford is building more apartments. We are 90% occupancy on our residential apartments here in the city. We're at a much lower occupancy on the commercial space. Um, but it does have a different economic uh, impact. And you, you've alluded to it. You know, the folks who are living in the city may not be going down to the restaurant to have lunch. They're probably making it in their kitchen or dinner, same thing. Um, but there's still local commerce that can happen if you have the right balance. And we've seen this in Stanford in a very, a very helpful way. New Haven seems to be almost a blend, if you will, and the vibrancy of New Haven has returned, but has a good mix of commercial and residential. And Hartford a little bit behind those two cities, but on its way, we've got to pivot that commercial space to residential if we can't backfill it with other commercial tenants. And I know there's been talk about maybe some tax credits to help incentivize converting commercial space to residential to pay for those costs. Um, it may not have the same impact economically of a business being downtown, but at least it keeps the city going. Well, and it speaks to something that has been happening increasingly in the state, maybe not as much as some people would like, Rich, is, is the idea of transit-oriented development, building around places where buses frequent, building around places where trains frequent, if indeed public transportation will be more of the norm in the future workforce, then having people who are able to, to occupy spaces near easily accessible public transportation makes a lot more sense. And we have to do that, John. We have to embrace, sorry, we have to embrace transit-oriented housing. And, and there's really the debate right now is, I think there's enough folks who understand it. it's a must, it's the how. And that mm. always sometimes bogs us down on the, on the policy side of things, um, but it's a must. It's a must to be able to move those folks. As you mentioned, it's also a, a retention and recruitment tool. You know, the younger people, Rich mentioned, who want to come into Connecticut, they want to live in maybe an urban area, but be able to uh, get around very easily. Mm -hmm. That transit-oriented housing is going to be critical to that. Rich, go ahead. Yeah, I think the city of New Haven is poised, uh, especially. Um, we're seeing a, a really a bold plan to bring development and reconnect the downtown to the station. Um, I think those opportunities really are across the board uh, throughout the throughout the state. But yeah, there's there's some exciting steps forward, and I think New New Haven is going to be phenomenal. There's the downtown crossing project, which is reconnecting um, and and reopening the city to its train station. Uh, up and down the line, we have ample parking uh, right now that is really just a low um, low productivity, right? It's it's surface parking. 
that really can be put to a better use. And residential is, is where it's at. Um, absolutely, people wanna live and be able to work conveniently to transit. And uh, rather than try to find ways to build lines to new areas, uh, we've got assets that we could, we could uh, leverage and put to better use. I, I want to talk about something we mentioned earlier, but uh, we should circle back to or Orlena, this idea of uh, retaining employees, recruiting new employees. What have been the challenges for you and others in the HR field in this really unusual time? Yeah, so it's definitely been uh, several challenges that, you know, employers and um, those who work in talent acquisition have faced uniquely. And um, some of the attraction, I think, is really looking at an employer's brand and their value proposition and, you know, how an employer is promoting themselves. So whether it's from a social media space, from a community responsibility perspective, um, and then when you think about various generations, there are certain um, aspects of that employer brand, which will attract, you know, a certain type of employee or a certain generation of employee. Um, I think another challenge is, you know, wage competition, right? So there's various types of incentives that have been offered, whether it's a referral bonus or a sign-on bonus. Um, I see a lot, uh, a lot more on LinkedIn specifically about hi, I work at this company and I love it here and it's great. And, you know, so really trying to touch people in a different way versus just let me post a job on, you know, Indeed or let me just post a job on LinkedIn, but kind of humanizing um, that attraction and really being strategic. And also I think organizations who may have um, maybe initially went outside or externally to find talent there's really an emphasis in, in major organizations or in organizations in general around their retention, but also internal mobility when it comes to talent, right? So, you know, maybe there's a certain skill set that someone may not have, but they are a high potential employee and they can do more. Okay, organization, is there an opportunity to upskill that employee, right? And really maximize their transferable skills so I think that emphasis on the internal mobility piece is something that may not have been as strong before of really looking at your you know, talent inventory per se and really maximize that. But I know um, <laughs> at a glance that definitely the compensation piece has been the most competitive. And uh, the example that I shared earlier about the person who had the great regret, like they took a job at a major <laughs> social media company and they had like, you know, a $40,000 increase in pay, but then it wasn't what they expected, right? So then they ended up going back to another organization and taking a pay cut. But those incentives look very attractive. So it has been a method that employers have used to attract um, employees. And I, I, I embracing no, no, pl please go ahead. Sorry. 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 And just one more add to embrace yeah. flexibility, because I think it is a new norm. So like if I see a job posting and it says, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5, one hour lunch, like people might be like, what? You know, like that's not, <laughs> that's not the future of work, right? So I think employers need to be smart about, again, you know, if I'm, that first impression for an employee might be that job posting, and there could be several flags in there <laughs> that may not be attractive. But, but it, it honestly, it was both the present and the future of work as of February, 2020. 
I mean, we didn't expect Orlena anything different, right? That's what work was. And now this has shifted work. I guess one question I have for you is, is has it shifted work forever? And secondly, has it shifted work for the better? I can speak for myself that for me, I don't necessarily see myself full-time, 40 hours a week being in an office, right? I don't know if I can go back to that format. Um, but I'm also at maybe a different part of my career where I can kind of make that and say, this is a preference for me, right? So I do think for the, or, but there were some organizations who weren't ready in March of 2020. They didn't know what their next step was, right? Maybe their employees had outdated computers and they, they weren't using Teams or they just, they just didn't have the proper resources and technology to make that leap in that moment. So some were ready. And some were not. Some flipped the switch and it was just more of, okay, here's how we're going to move forward with this. And they adjusted. But there were a lot of companies that were not ready. And I think one, and I don't want to say not ready in this sense, but I think about like the restaurant industry, right? And this is a personal silver lining for me because I think it transformed. Like I was so impressed to see, you know, smaller restaurants, our local restaurants in the community who had to think about, oh, well, how do we do takeout now differently? Um, or I would go through a Chick-fil-A line and someone would have a yardstick with a payment processor to take my debit card in the drive-through, right, to eat. So um, how we can just go do curbside pickup. Like that wasn't a popular thing before the pandemic. And companies have shown that they had to figure it out and they had to be resilient and they had to be creative and innovative to maintain their employees and to maintain the, the, the income um, and their revenue there. So I, I do think, yes, it was a current state, you know, when COVID became the thing that we all can't stop talking about, but it's definitely forced a lot of organizations to definitely think differently. And I do think what we're experiencing now is here for the long haul. I don't think that it's just a trend. I think it's something that employers have enjoyed as well. Before I, I let you all go, I guess I should ask, because we've thrown around so many big ideas, I'm wondering, and I'll start with you, Rich, if, if there's one way in which you think this has permanently changed the way in which we work, and is there some ideal workplace out there that balances some of these these issues that we've been dealing with over the course of the last two years? I think the key is a great question. I think the key is the flexibility and the creativity that remote work can provide. For example, um, there, there are certain topics, uh, well, two, two examples in mind. One is travel. Um, I, I interact a lot, quite a bit with uh, Metro North Railroad and uh, would find myself in New York multiple times each month before the pandemic. It's still important to go down there and meet with them. But what I find is that we're using Zoom and Teams, uh, Microsoft Teams, as, as a way to connect and connect in person face-to-face, -face, so to speak, but, but doing it virtually. Uh, enormous time savings associated with that. Um, you know, a trip from Hartford where I work in the Hartford area down in New York is an all-day uh, experience. So, so now there's efficiency. You know, creativity is the other aspect. We can all huddle around uh, something online digitally. We can use the chat function. We can mark up documents collaboratively. Um, we're doing this uh, to, to a very great extent right now at the Department of Transportation, where we have a a big complicated issue we're dealing with. We can put it up on the screen. We can all chime in um, and, and, and show our edits in real time. Um, you know, in, in person, that might not be as practical. So I think there, there are advantages here. And I think um, 
business continuity too. Um, the world is a crazy place. Um, who, who would have thought we'd be dealing with a pandemic just a few years ago? So I think just being flexible and nimble is 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 key. How about you, Arlena? Uh, an ideal workplace that you think comes out of this in your mind? Yeah, I think the, the future of work is definitely hybrid. Um, I think, again, and the employers embracing the flexibility, promoting productivity, and creating a culture that will engage and retain employees is, is really what the future of work is. So definitely the hybrid format. Um, and and I, I don't want to also forget about the fact of the importance of like that in-person engagement, but the nuances of preference versus the policy of who's going to be in the office, right? So I've heard feedback about, you know, companies saying or employees sharing feedback, oh, I came into the office, I was told to come into the office, but I'm looking at my computer screen. I could have looked at my computer screen at home, right? <laughs> just to connect with someone who was somewhere else looking at a computer screen. So just really thinking strategically and intentionally about why it is great to come into the office. And then if we're going to come to, into the office, being intentional about that, and then still embracing those, like I said earlier, who are going, who, who've never left the workplace, right? And are actively using transportation to get from point A to B to C and back again, I think really empowering and supporting that workforce as well. Chris, how about you? Yeah, John, I'll just echo some of the things that Lena said uh, earlier around messaging and communication. I, I think it is better for the workplace and I don't think there is an ideal business out there yet that are all still figuring it out. It's gonna take months and, and maybe years before you have that best practice out there. Uh, and that best practice may vary from industry to industry or business size to business size. But on the, on the messaging and the communication piece, you know, COVID has really caught us all to look in the mirror. And from the business perspective, it's early on it was, let's just give them a lot of money, sign on bonuses, it was all financial. And we weren't meeting the employees where they were at, which was, I wanna work for a company with a great vision. I wanna work for a company that is meaningful. I wanna work for a company that gives me a, a hybrid opportunity or flexibility or bring your dog to work day, you know, that we were missing. We're starting to get closer. We're still missing, but it's getting closer. Um, and so now as the, the ideal workplace is going to be that business that really understands their value, really understand what they mean, not only to their community and to their customers, but to their employees. And from the communication piece, it's going to be engaging the employees at a level that we've never seen before. And I know employee engagement was the talk for the last 20, 30 plus years, but this is a new level of employee engagement. This is a level where one-on-one -on -one communication is happening at a regular basis. How are you doing today? It's back to work. How's your mental health? How are you feeling? How can we arrange your schedule differently when you are working from home? Does the technology finally come along and blocks off every 15 minutes for you so someone can't fill that white space with a whole bunch of meetings and you can take a break and get up and move around every once in a while? Um, and it's really going to be an employee-driven culture um, and excellent communication and understanding the right message. Why would an employee want to work for this company? What does it mean for them as an individual? And it's no longer just about a paycheck. Well, I will leave our conversation there so we can all get up and take a walk around today. Uh, thanks for joining us for Connecticut in Motion. Future segments of Connecticut in Motion will look at the progress in getting employees back to the workplace and new ways to accommodate the emerging travel patterns. Uh, many thanks to today's guests, Chris DiMantima, President and CEO of the Connecticut Business and Industry Association, Orlina Cowan-Bailey, Executive Director for Connecticut Sherm, and Rich Andreski, Bureau Chief of the Bureau of Public Transportation at the CTDOT. Thank you all so much for joining us today. I'm John Dankosky of the Connecticut Mirror. 
Thanks so much for joining us.